0: Part of being successful as a startup is hard work, right? But that's not what makes or breaks you because all of your peers are working just as hard. You can tell, I think, when someone is trying to sell you versus telling you how they really feel. Hiring a VP of product or a chief marketing officer is way more difficult. And part of it's just that at that level, everyone's good at selling themselves. And partly it's that you can't give someone a take-home test and come back and say, Oh yeah, you know exactly how to run marketing.
1: You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at Replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit Heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready podcast, I sit down with Jonathan Ellis, co-founder and CTO of DataStax, the primary company behind the Cassandra Distributed Database Open Source Project. Jonathan and I spend a bit of time understanding his background as an engineer at various startups until he found his way into distributed storage systems at Mozi and Rackspace. Jonathan's time at Rackspace gave him the opportunity to get intimately familiar with Cassandra and even chair the Apache Foundation's Cassandra project. Eventually, Jonathan recognized the opportunity to create a commercial entity around the Cassandra project and left Rackspace to start DataStax. We discussed the evolution of the Datastacks offerings that range from support and services to an enterprise offering and a recent database as a service offering. We also touch on the interplay between data stacks and the underlying orchestration platforms like Mesos and Kubernetes, even turning out for a bit on some recent progress that his team has made with operators and self-healing automated optimization tools. Jonathan offers some insights on recruiting, interviewing, and hiring both the exec and individual engineer level. This is a super interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me on the show, Grant. Great. So I'd love to just kind of jump right into it and hear a bit about your background and kind of how you got into enterprise software.
0: Yeah, it's actually been, I think, a bit of an atypical journey because like the first half of my career was very startup oriented. And so in the 10 years before I started DataStax, I was at nine different companies.
1: Wow, that's that's quite a lot.
0: Yeah, and you know it's even more when my second job, my tenure there was uh, almost three years. So you you pull that out, like the average, it gets pretty low. Uh, some of those were because you know it just wasn't a good fit, and I said, okay, I'll find something else. But more of them were you know when you're doing like super early stage startups, you know they ran out of money. My first one was a, a dot com bust. Or you know, another one got acquired, and I was redundant. So that kind of stuff uh, tends to happen.
1: So the, the first one was during the like uh, early two thousands, like late nineties. Yeah, I graduated
0: from college in December of ninety
1: nine. So t- tell us about that. Like, what, So did you join the startup right away?
0: I did, and it's funny. I, I have a, a friend named Gary Deusbabik, and he recruited me to this uh, job out of college and to. Uh, my next job after that, and I returned the favor. I recruited him to his next two jobs. It's kind of good, you know, in the in industry, it's there's a lot of change, but it's kind of good to have those friends that you uh, you work with uh, for multiple years, even if it's across different companies. But that first one was it was a little bit ahead of its time. It was trying to build a content management system. On top of uh, dynamic HTML, which you know in early 2000 didn't really exist yet, you know we didn't have uh, XML HTTP request yet, so the, the technology wasn't quite ready, and uh, and the timing was definitely bad on the you know
1: industry state. And so, were any of these like, would you consider them enterprise software companies? Is that something you would have classified them at at the time?
0: Uh, not really. I mean, they weren't really. The closest would have been uh, the company I worked for that that built newspaper publishing software. so that that had some things in common with you know what I think of in terms of enterprise software today, but it was more of an ISV, I think.
1: Okay. so you were delivering software to these newspaper organizations. That's kind of funny because it's like as the internet is is disrupting everything to do with media and news, you're building software for those teams.
0: Yeah. So that was, that was actually my second job. So that was like 2001 to 2003. And uh, the writing was already on the wall. A lot of people were kind of in denial about it, but the writing was definitely on the wall in terms of this is not a growth industry.
1: Yeah. That's, you know, the, the rising tide is is quite important, right? Yeah. And you went to, to BYU, right? I did. Yes. And so were you staying in Utah for these other jobs?
0: Yes, so I, w- I was in Utah for the next 10 years after graduation, and I'll skip over some jobs that kind of didn't go anywhere. But the first startup that I joined that you know had some uh, success was a backup uh, software provider called Mosey. And this kind of gets into why I'm a big fan, and I, I know I'm on Enterprise Ready Podcast, but I'm a big fan of as a software developer joining startups. And what that does is the startup, if it's it's like most startups, it can't afford, it literally can't afford to hire the talent that would let it say, I'm 100% certain that Jonathan can build my storage backend because he's already done it three times at other companies. Like those people are really expensive. And so Mosey was willing to take a chance and say, you know, Jonathan, on paper, you're completely unqualified to do this, but we've interviewed you. We think you're smart and we're going to take a chance. So it's kind of like bi-directional risk, like they're taking a chance on me and I'm taking a chance on them. Uh, and that really oh, it, there's some powerful opportunities to accelerate your learning that, that you don't have uh, otherwise. Yeah. So that actually happened with with Mosey. They said, you know, we want you to build the storage back in. So I was basically building kind of something, it's similar in spirit to Amazon S3, except it's specialized for backups, meaning we kind of don't care what the latency is to pull back a file. Uh, What we care mostly about is throughput on ingest. And then like there's a footnote there that says we also want, we also care about throughput on restore, but we definitely don't care about latency on, on reads. So that scaled to uh, multiple petabytes. It worked as advertised. And what happened on the way to building that, I mean, what, we, what we built was a, a content addressable storage system based on Erasure Coding. And so that's kind of, you know, even in 2006, that was kind of a you know, pretty well understood how you build this kind of system. And the problem we ran into was we wanted to do single instance storage, meaning if you and I both upload the same MP3 or the same JPEG, the system only stores one copy and then it says Jonathan and Grant both have copies of this file. And that takes it from just you know, a simple content addressable store to now I need to have like these relationships and track ownership of these files I'm storing. And that was a really hard problem because you couldn't just store, you know, millions of users with billions of files and have relationships between them on any database on the market at the time. And so we kind of hacked it together using using our own storage system, but it wasn't a great solution. And this kind of set off like a, a realization in my head that, you know, this class of problem uh, was going to hit you know, basically everyone building what we called at the time Web 2.0 applications, that the database technology was just not up to the task being demanded of them.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, so that was kind of where you first had the insight that the database, sort of state-of-the-art databases, weren't really... Going to scale and be as they're, they're, people were going to reach a lot of challenges with those as as they sort of emerged into you know Web 2.0 and web scale technologies.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So the the primary challenge I think was around scale, but then there's also a secondary one around availability and how do I build a database that you know never goes down even when there's hardware failures and you know even when there's a power failure in the rack or, or that kind of thing.
1: Okay. So you had that insight while you are at Mosi, and just real quick, was Mosey targeted at kind of consumer prosumer or was it targeted at like, you know, business and enterprise to buy licenses for their employees?
0: No, I think like any good startup, uh, you know, the strategy changes over time and we started targeting consumers and there was actually a lot of interest from, hey, I, I like this idea. I want offsite backups for my company. Now, how do I as an IT administrator you know, how do I control these accounts and quotas and so forth? And so we started moving in that direction after a year or two.
1: Okay, but you, you left there. So did the company keep going? Did you just decide to, to take off and do something different?
0: Yeah, so, so my, my timing was actually spectacularly poor. I left within 30 days of EMC making an offer to acquire them. So I left before that. But what basically what happened was uh, Mosey was uh, getting to seventy-ish employees, and you know I was reporting to a director who reported to a vice president, who reported to the CEO instead of reporting directly to the CEO. And I was like, man, this is you know there's too much red tape. You seventy-person know, company, man, this is this is huge. And so I was,
1: I moved on to, to something smaller. Okay, so that was the reason it was just not feeling as startup anymore
0: yeah I think that's the that's the short version, yeah, cool. And so now you know skipping ahead uh, fifteen years, uh, you know I started Datastax, which is you know five hundred employees. So that's a, a little bit of irony for you.
1: yeah, yeah, I, I get it though. it's like if you're going to be in a bigger company, you want to be towards the top to figure out how to how to have a real impact. so I get that desire. And how did you end up at at Rackspace? So that was kind of, that feels like where you really got deep on, you know, obviously Mosey gave you some, you know, insight into building and and sort of understanding these distributed uh, large-scale storage, but Rackspace feels like it's really where the seeds of data stacks were planted. And how did you end up there?
0: Right. Uh, So I gave a talk at PyCon, probably 2007, where I explained the work I'd done at Mosey because Uh, The storage backend I wrote was actually in Python, which sort of made sense uh, in the sense that, you know, Python is pretty slow and inefficient, but when you're talking about storing files, you care a lot more about disk IO than you care about CPU efficiency. Hmm. So it sort of made sense. It turns out like there's actually a bunch of reasons why Python wasn't ready for that kind of uh, system software, uh, which turned into another talk I gave called What Python Can Learn from Java. I've got pretty strong opinions about this. But the people at Rackspace saw the talk that I gave about the storage system I built, and they said, oh, that looks really interesting because we're building out cloud services. We want to compete with Amazon. Uh, And again, Rackspace's strategy has changed since then. But at the time, they wanted to compete head-to-head with Amazon and have a file storage system and, you know, DNS as a service, and all these things. And so uh, they said, hey, you, know, you should come and work with us. And I said, "That's I'd be interested. But what I'm more interested in than recreating this, this storage service is the next step of scalable databases. I think that's the big unsolved problem. And, uh, and they said, you know, you're right. We definitely need that at Rackspace for our customers, for our own internal services. So, we'll hire you to work on that. And so that was in the fall of 2008. And that summer, Facebook had open sourced Cassandra. So, it wasn't Apache Cassandra yet, it was like, you know, it was Cassandra from Facebook. And so I got to evaluate, you know, when I got to Rackspace, I got to evaluate Cassandra. There were some systems you don't hear about anymore, but were, you know, recently open sourced at the time. There was Voldemort from LinkedIn. Uh, there was dynamite from uh, PowerSet. There was MongoDB. There was HBase. So I got to evaluate these systems and, and say, you know, I think that a, the space is super early. These, all of these technologies are super young. So rather than optimize for who's got the, you know, most complete solution right now, like that's going to change in the next, you know, twelve months. What I'm going to optimize for is who's got the best foundation. And I really thought that Cassandra's combination of a fully peer-to-peer scale-out solution combined with a big table style data model that gives you rows and columns was uh, was the best foundation to start with. So that's kind of what I, I put my energy into.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, so you, you took a sort of uh, broad... Evaluation of all the various technologies that were emerging to sort of solve this distributed database problem. Were they calling it big data at that point? Was that a term?
0: I th- my memory is fuzzy, but I think they were.
1: Okay, so like you know, kind of this big data problem, and and you like just kind of fell in love with Cassandra, or what what happened there?
0: Yeah, it was it was really the technical factors that caused my uh, uh, man crush, I guess, and. I would add a third factor, which is that it was remarkably simple for what it did. I think at the time it was under 50,000 lines of code compared to, for instance, HBase was clocking in at around 250,000. And so I'm looking at that and saying, you know, if these two are doing roughly the same thing and one of them is five times as complex, I think I can move the needle a lot faster on the
1: simpler one. Okay. And so you took some type of involvement with getting Cassandra involved with Apache, or what happened, how did that come about? How did it become, you know, Apache Cassandra?
0: Yeah, so the, there was uh, me and uh, there was one other guy, I think from, um, I don't remember what company he was at at the time. He eventually joined Cloudera. His name's Todd Lipcon, uh really talented engineer. And we were both maintaining, you know, our own kind of forks, of Facebook's Cassandra. And so the the engineers at Facebook, they were kind of taking an attitude of, if this is useful for you, then great, but we're not looking to build a community, we're looking to solve problems we have at Facebook. Mm -hmm. If our work turns out to be useful to other people, then great, but we're optimizing for our own problems. Kind of their nod towards this nascent Cassandra community was to contribute the code to Apache, and I became the first non-Apache committer uh, to Cassandra, or non-Facebook committer to Apache Cassandra.
1: Okay, cool. And did they continue to use the upstream Apache version, or did they maintain like their own fork? So
0: this is this is actually where I get to tell my story about the time I broke Facebook. They they were <laughs> running not not only were they running Apache Cassandra, but you know for the first few weeks, they were running from trunk. We were using subversion. So they were pulling from trunk and building that and just pushing it into production. And uh, so after I became committer, I'm like, cool, I'm going to commit stuff. And I started committing some of the patches that I put together. And uh, one of them broke something catastrophically. And Avinash was instant messaging me, I think it was on a late Friday night like what did you do everything's broken
1: (laughs) that's amazing well you you were moving fast so yeah that's that's it's acceptable
0: yeah so we had a discussion about like branches and stable branches and that kind of thing
1: and and Avinash is the was one of the creators of Cassandra at Facebook correct
0: that's right yeah
1: got it okay so you were at Rackspace really excited about Cassandra I'm guessing that like did Rackspace have a Cassandra as a service offering or what was going on there
0: Yeah, so the the first thing we were targeting at Rackspace was similar to what we'd done at Mosey, where they had this file storage system, and they wanted to track which users owned which files. Before we got Cassandra to a stable enough point where that rolled out, they actually started over with a completely different architecture for their cloud file storage, and uh, I'd left to uh, start DataStax. So it ended up not ever going into production at Rackspace at the time. Several years later, Rackspace uh, became a DataStax customer, but you know that was you know, kind of a different different era at that point.
1: All right, cool. So tell us you know more about. So you're you're on this Apache Software Foundation. You helped kind of get that going. You're the first committer into Cassandra outside of Facebook. And what makes you decide like, wow, there's a big opportunity here. I should start a business around this.
0: So I'm, I'm going to caveat this with, you know, my crystal ball wasn't perfect. Uh, so if I did it over again, I would have started data stacks much faster than I actually did. What I actually did was it was about a year and a half into working on Cassandra before I left to uh, start data stacks. And that was time that it set data stacks back versus where we could have been just because, you know, when I went and got my Series A of funding, you know, I staffed up to, you know, eight engineers working on Cassandra relatively quickly. And the most Rackspace had ever had on Cassandra was four. So, you know, right away you're saying, you know, I could have gotten twice as much done for that time that I was at Rackspace versus at data stacks. So I didn't do it quickly enough in hindsight, but what actually pushed me over into starting the company even though it was kind of outside my comfort zone was kind of a, a sense of pride in what I was building and we had a telecom company that was active on the Cassandra mailing list in late uh, 2009 and I was really excited about this because you know this was Cassandra like 0.5 or maybe 0.6 so it's super early still, but this is a really great use case uh, that the company has. And then all of a sudden like I didn't hear anything more from them from several weeks and I reached out and asked what happened?" And they said, well, my boss said we needed to go use uh, Reoc from Basho because we can get a commercial support contract even though Cassandra is better technology for what we're doing. And I was like, man, that really sucks. Like, somebody needs to start a company around Cassandra so that we can solve that bug, if you will. That's funny.
1: Like, someone should do that, right? <laughs> so, you'd been, you know, early engineer at a lot of different companies. What gave you the sort of confidence or, you know, desire to be like, well, I'm going to go start that company?
0: I think a, a couple things did. One is that the man who became our lead investor for our Series A, John Vrianis. Had actually talked to me about six months earlier. So this was right around the time where you so you had big data, but then you also had NoSQL. And one of my coworkers at Rackspace, Eric Evans, created the NoSQL term, uh, something which he has mixed feelings about to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the touch point, I think, for some broader awareness that, oh yeah, this scalable database thing, like this is a a problem that needs to be solved. And John was uh, one of the earliest investors to start looking at that. Somehow he tracked down my contact information and called me up. We had a conversation about it and I believe he asked me specifically, so when are you going to start a company for Cassandra? And I said, I'm not ready to do that yet. and Was he at a, a venture fund or was he an angel? Yeah, he was he was a, a venture capitalist
1: from Lightspeed. Okay, cool. So he's researching the industry, sees this project, sees that you're a contributor. You're not at Facebook. Thinks that you might be the best person to actually go off, and you're probably the chair. Of the, you're the chairman of the foundation or something. So thinks you're the best person to start this company.
0: Right. I was the chairman of the Apache Cassandra project, uh, which is distinct from the board of directors of the 200 odd projects at the Apache Software Foundation.
1: Right, right, but so you're you're chairing that specific project. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean that's great. So you you know you have inbound investor interest from a a reputable venture fund, so that's helpful in terms of giving you some confidence that you might be able to start a company around this. Exactly. And then you decide to to stop, and you maybe talk to someone you're working, someone else is working on it with you, and bring them on as a co-founder. How how did that happen? So I was I
0: was leading the uh, Cassandra technology. Effort, And there was another team uh, led by a guy named Matt File that was more like, we're going to deploy Cassandra for these different projects. So he was, he was going to be running the Cassandra service. So when I told uh, Rackspace Management that I was going to leave to, to start a company, uh, Matt drove down. He was in Austin. I was in San Antonio. Matt drove down to talk me out of it. And uh, it ended up uh, working the other way around where he decided to to join me as our first CEO.
1: Okay, very cool. And is he someone you had worked closely with while at Rackspace? That's right, yeah. Since
0: we were kind of working on the two halves of the the Cassandra service, yes.
1: That makes total sense. Okay, and did you raise right away? Is that when you sort of went straight back to Lightspeed? or
0: Yes, base, effectively right away. And so we ended up raising uh, a $2.5 million Series A which in another one of those hindsight moments was not enough to do an infrastructure company, but uh, but that's what we
1: did. Yeah, and now we would call that a seed to pre-seed, right? That's just the way. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a different world. Yeah, it totally is. And then you moved to Austin to start the company, or were you, did you stay in San Antonio?
0: I stayed in San Antonio at first, and before you know, we started recording, uh, I mentioned that hiring executives is uh, one of the things that looks easy until you try it our first uh, vp of engineering was kind of a disaster and so most of our engineers were in austin at first and so i actually moved to austin to do uh, damage control
1: okay great so and that's where that's where your ceo was it's where most of the team ended up being or did you end up hiring pretty distributed
0: yeah so for the first year we did have a concentration in austin and then our investors convinced us that we needed to have our headquarters in uh, California. So Matt moved out to uh, to stand up that uh, new office there. Uh, but on the engineering side, you know, we did have kind of a, a cluster in Austin and later on a cluster in California. But one of the things that I wanted to preserve from my time working on open source first was that distributed engineering and that sense that we can hire the best people, no matter where they are and location shouldn't be an obstacle you know to writing
1: code collaboratively. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's sort of the you know core open source ethos, right? is that you can kind of do this from anywhere.
0: Yeah, and what that gives you is you do need to be able to work in a more asynchronous fashion because you know, instead of going over to the next cube and saying, hey, Gary, can you uh, review this patch that I just wrote? And then going over it with him, it's more of a I'm going to do a pull request and Gary will review it when it's convenient for him, which might be you know, in a time zone six or 12 hours away. And so I need to be able to task switch and work on something else in the meantime. So that's a little bit difficult for some people, but I think most engineers uh, deal with that pretty well. But in exchange for that, you know you get a lot of of benefits and and this is this is something that I'm pretty passionate about that as a manager in a traditional office environment, even if you're trying super hard to be objective, you can't help but be influenced by things like Jonathan is the first one in the office and the last one to leave. He sure works hard. And, you know, when my team is completely distributed, then I'm forced to manage by, like, is Jonathan actually doing good work? And is he, you know, doing it effectively? So I think it's it's, it's a lot healthier and it's a lot more, it's kind of the world that engineers want to live in, which is like, uh, you know, good work gets rewarded and bad work doesn't. And, you know, politics doesn't play a role. Like there's still politics, but I think it is less of a factor in a distributed culture.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's become, you know, obviously a pretty big trend in in the last 10 years. You know, you started in Austin and opened up a headquarters in SF or, or in California. And I think you've seen the same trend happen. A lot of people are based in, you know, SF or the Valley and, and are opening, you know, uh, technical offices either in Austin or throughout the rest of the world in order to have access to more engineers, more distributed team, you know, without paying the the huge uh, tax on, on talent up in the Bay Area. So,
0: And it's, it's not just like access to more engineers, but it's also access to more senior engineers. And the reason why I believe that is if you're in the Valley, you know, as a 20-something single person, you know the cost of living super high, but the salaries are also super high. You can you can make that work, but when you start looking at you know, hey, I've got a serious relationship. We're starting to think about having kids. Like that's kind of a different era of life, and it's a lot harder to do that in Silicon Valley unless you know you've IPO'd or something and you're calling in rich. Uh, so you know we've we've had some of our early engineers who we hired in the Valley because I mentioned we do have some engineers that are headquarters. And some of those have moved to you know, Louisiana or to Texas. And that's fine, right? That's not an obstacle for us versus other companies that, that might be like, oh, you need to find a new job. So I think that the not just being flexible about the place, but having that asynchronous decoupling of office hours from you know, when you do the work, I think that's really healthy because it gives you a chance to get a bit of that work life balance where the trend has always been work has been bleeding more and more into your personal life but when you're working from home like it's okay for your personal life to bleed a little bit into work like you know I go pick up my kids but that's okay because I'm going to be writing code you know after she goes to sleep.
1: Yeah, it it does definitely require a a level of separation still, right? You you sort of have to be you know, sort of either doing one thing completely or another thing completely. So like picking up your kids, you're not trying to also write code, right? And and there's a right. there's there's a level of of sort of maturity and focus that's required in order to be successful as a as a remote sort of distributed team. And I think that's and it probably is better for more senior folks anyway, because they kind of understand how how work actually gets done.
0: I think that's that's a good word to use uh, the maturity word. I was I was talking with our director of culture. Uh, I'm not sure if that's his formal title, but that's kind of what he's doing. And he's kind of new to the distributed uh, engineering thing and he said, "So basically what you're saying is it's like attending a college class where the teacher says, "I'm not going to take attendance, but I will grade you on your final." <laughs> and so like it's yeah. it's you know some students can deal with that and Other students are like, oh, he's not taking attendance. I'm not going to show up, and then I fail.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely an important skill. I think in this sort of modern, you know, enterprise software, just software world, to be able to to hire, recruit, and then and help onboard those those folks into that kind of remote environment. Cool. So let's let's talk a bit more about sort of data stacks in the in the early days, right? So you know, you sort of start this company, you get two and a half million funding, you hire on eight engineers. And you did you sort of like, were you modeling the company in the go to market after other database, like open core vendors like Mongo and these others that you, you kind of mentioned or Basho and React? Like, what were you, what were the sort of go to market motions that you were, yeah. you were emulating? I, th- I
0: think our peers were kind of figuring this out at the same time as we were. So we weren't really looking to each other as, you know, we're going to imitate what, Uh, Datastax does, or what Basho does, so much as like the generation of uh, infrastructure software just previous. Uh, So JBoss was one of the ones that we looked at, and we said, "Oh, like this this open core model seems to work pretty well for JBoss."
1: Yeah, and I guess you sort of didn't have a choice about it being open core, right? Because you know your team didn't create the underlying technology that was happened at Facebook. They open sourced it, and so. You were open core like that. That wasn't a choice, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, and it turned out that uh, I guess a lot of people came to similar conclusions that you know open core was probably the best way to build a company around open source because you know even our peers like you know we mentioned MongoDB they own their copyright you know it doesn't belong to Apache Software Foundation so they could have done lots of different models but they followed a pretty similar open core uh, strategy.
1: And when did you actually start working with customers like right away or is you know so like this telco did you get a contract with them right away or did it take take a while to start to get some amount of paying customers?
0: It was pretty quick it was so we started the company I believe officially in May beginning of May and we announced our our a round. I think in July. So you know, in just those few months, we already had uh, customers before uh, signing that A round. So I remember a couple of them are don't exist anymore because you know that's kind of the nature of the the technology space. But but yeah, we did have some customers by then.
1: And were those customer relationships purely sort of like the support and yes. training? Okay. Yeah,
0: support and services. And the plan was, hey, you know, like we said, open core, we're going to build stuff around this, we're going to sell a product. But like those super early customers, you know, they're
1: just straight up paying us for support. Great. And when did you offer the first like sort of enterprise product?
0: Man, I'm, I'm struggling with my uh, internal way back machine here, but <laughs> I think that was probably 2012.
1: Okay. And like, how did you differentiate that product? What was in that that wasn't in the, uh, the open core project?
0: So the first thing we added was uh, Hadoop integration. So that was like the hot big data thing at the time. And then we added a search through uh, basically a fork of solar that we hacked up to run on top of Cassandra. Mm. And then you know, we started doing things around security. And what were the security things? Uh, so the audit logging is one support for physical uh, security modules. Encryption at rest. Uh, so, I think what kind of the standard things you'd expect, I think.
1: Yeah, sure. That makes sense. And so, encryption at rest wasn't like a default feature. Um, I'm, I'm guessing it maybe it is now.
0: It, it's a little bit messy because uh, Apache Cassandra in the open source project provides support for encrypting what's called your SS tables but not for encrypting other things like the commit log or the index files. So it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. And so we said, we're going to solve that end-to-end and plug all the holes.
1: Okay, interesting. Uh, have you released some of the proprietary features around Cassandra back into the open source over time as they've become sort of more like common in other contemporary databases and alternatives?
0: Uh, We haven't done a a whole lot of that. What's more common is we'll look at something that we're working on, and uh, sometimes this overlaps with things that other contributors are working on uh, in the Apache world. For instance, uh, the upcoming Cassandra 4.0 includes an implementation of uh, system views where we present internal data about the system as views that you can select from with the Cassandra query language instead of having to go over the Java management API uh, that's Java only. So we were working on that concurrently and we said, okay, let's join forces and combine these efforts.
1: Okay. So occasionally there'll be things that you have roadmapped as potentially enterprise offering within the community, maybe wants to pull into the the open core, and you'll collaborate on building that together, right? Cool, and then make it an open core feature. Sounds like, mm-hmm. and like you know, as you've you know sort of scaled out data stacks, it seems like the majority of your business has been sort of the the enterprise offering. And are you taking a top down approach to that, where you're you have? Enterprise sales rapture going out into the world and engaging with folks who have you know who have used Cassandra. Or are they approaching folks that have never heard of Cassandra? How do you sort of approach that go-to-market side?
0: Yeah, when we introduced uh, DataStax Enterprise, like we pulled the plug on like selling open-source support contracts, and we said you know we're not a, a support company; we're a product company, and you know we're, we sell DataStax Enterprise and. You know, this is for solid reasons that you can probably guess at that, you know, we wanted to be seen by the market as a product company and have the margins associated with that. But at the same time, we did lose something from that in the sense that, you know, there are people out there who want support for Apache Cassandra, but don't necessarily want the enterprise features that that we're selling. And so uh, late last year, we added what we call DataStax Luna, which is uh, a support offering for Apache Cassandra. And so I guess that's kind of a sign of the maturity of the company, that we're comfortable that we've defined ourselves as that product company, and we can go ahead and sell support for Cassandra as well without diluting that a great deal.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: And then you, you asked about uh, the go-to-market, and yeah, it's pretty much... Uh, Enterprise sales manager, uh, you know GTM, where we are primarily targeting uh, Cassandra users, but also we have a, a fair sprinkling of customers who have gone straight from Oracle or even mainframes to data stacks without first, you know, stopping with Cassandra. So they're primarily the Cassandra market, but also like people who have you know, scale out problems in general.
1: Okay, and so that's more of like a true top-down sale where, you know, you're coming in and replacing existing technologies without them sort of coming up and showing interest in the open source community. Right. Cool. You know, it it sounds like you also recently created a a hosted version of this. I think you call it Apollo. Yes. Is that targeted at the same type of user or is that a little bit more mid-market oriented? Who's the targeted user for that? And tell us more about that product as well.
0: What we're trying to do with Apollo is is really expand the Cassandra market. Uh, I think Cassandra has a reputation, justifiably, as you know, extremely powerful. It can solve problems nobody else can, but it's also uh, difficult to manage and to run. And so our pitch with Apollo is, we're going to deliver the power of Cassandra, but now it's just you know a couple clicks to get up and running and you never have to you know, manage it. It's it's a database as a service. And so, I, I think that Cassandra has been held back a little bit by the technical requirements and the knowledge of the team to run it. And, uh, and that's the problem we're trying to solve with Apollo.
1: Okay, great, and when did you launch Apollo? Uh,
0: we started our open beta in
1: October. Okay, so it's quite recent. Yes, And is it the same features and, and tooling as DataStax Enterprise, or is it kind of a, a lighter version of that?
0: It, it is a lighter version. It's a Cassandra-shaped version. So we're providing uh, Cassandra features, but we're not providing the search features or the analytic features from DataStax Enterprise. Uh, we are bringing in some of those security features to Apollo. I think that's kind of the, the right place to start in terms of what... Are the enterprise features that are most well suited for a let's let's grow the Cassandra market audience?
1: Okay, great. And so and this fits really into that same sort of idea of of, we kind of call it product assortment, right? Good, better, best. And so, you know, now there's the open source edition, there's the Apollo version that gives you the hosted version, plus like a handful of other security features, and then there's the super enterprise edition that you can run. In your own environment, it has you know additional enterprise tooling and reporting and analytics. Is that right?
0: Right, and the plan is to merge the Apollo and the DSE feature sets over time. Uh, but that's a good description of where we're starting.
1: Cool. Just any new product is so hard to do, and it sounds like the, the go-to-market effort here and making this. Is it a self-serve kind of sign up and get going workflow?
0: It is, yes, and we we offer a a permanent free tier for people to use and you know you get x amount of of resources and you know that's that's free it's you know it's not a it's not a free for 30 days it's just free
1: oh cool and so targeting there like developers and trying to and trying to get more adoption of cassandra more broadly it sounds like yes so part marketing part you know funnel part build a business around this this as a service product over time
0: Exactly. And, you know, it's it's also about improving the the user experience because when you're controlling the platform, you can do things like, you know, we've integrated what we call DataStack Studio, which is a notebook interface to Cassandra and that that lets you, you know, start exploring your data and adding new data like it's part of the web interface of Apollo itself and not something separate that you have to download and configure.
1: Mm. And so, I mean, are you still targeting sort of developers or does this start to go into more, like maybe a data scientist might use this to put data in?
0: I did blur that line a little bit when I started talking about Studio, but we are targeting developers primarily at this point.
1: Okay. But Studio kind of gives this like UI experience maybe for someone else at the company that that, that developer might have might work with over time and to give them a, an experience to explore the data. Yes. Oh, cool. That's really interesting. And so... Will you have a separate go-to-market and sales team around the Apollo uh, offering, or you know, sort of a lot? Are your enterprise reps still sell the same thing?
0: I don't. I don't think this is a case where there's a right answer and a wrong answer. But uh, the answer we're going with right now is that we want our enterprise reps to focus on DSE, and uh, Apollo will be a, a new motion with uh, with a
1: different set of people. Cool. Um, that makes tons of sense. Okay, and it's it's interesting because you know within The data stacks world, you know, obviously Cassandra and a lot of your contemporaries, like you know, were solving really interested distributed data and distributed storage and and compute problems before the world of Kubernetes came around, right? Mm -hmm. And so now, when you sort of look at at the ecosystem, I mean, obviously, like distributed systems have become incredibly. Like popular and it's become this huge wave, and I think Kubernetes at the helm has really has really driven a lot of that. And I know you have some Kubernetes offerings, and you're moving more into that world. But you know, I'd love to sort of hear your perspective on one sort of the emergence of Kubernetes and how that's changed your your business and how that's changed some of your your offering and go to market as well.
0: Okay. I think the most important thing about Kubernetes is that you know it has become an industry standard for orchestration of uh, container-based infrastructure. And so, like, if it hadn't been Kubernetes, if it had been you know Mesosphere, for instance, I would have been okay with that outcome. But you know, it turns out that Kubernetes uh, basically won, and uh, and that's the world we live in. So, the database space is a, a little bit later. Than uh, other infrastructure to move to Kubernetes because Kubernetes has struggled with uh, managed with managing stateful applications for a while. Recently, I would say in the last uh, year, uh, maybe if you're more optimistic, you'd say last two years, it's uh, turned the corner and uh, and it's it's a lot more ready to to deal with stateful infrastructure now. But you know we're we're there now. So Apollo is built on top of Kubernetes. We're providing uh, an operator for Datastax Enterprise that's built on the Apollo one as well. So, yeah, I think it, I think it's the industry standard.
1: Okay, that's really interesting. so i, I was I was wondering if if Apollo would have would, would be running on top of Kubernetes. So it is that's that's interesting. And you mentioned your operator, right? So for those who aren't as familiar with the Kubernetes ecosystem, very popular sort of concepts, particularly around the uh, stateful services, is this idea of of operators. And so, there's a couple different frameworks. One from Google, I think they call Kubebuilder. One from uh, Red Hat, they call it the Operator Framework. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. But generally, the way that I understand it's pitched is it's sort of that same some of the same operational knowledge that you might use to create a service like Apollo. You start to bake some of that into a scheduler-aware and sort of smart manager that sits inside of the cluster and then is managing the different instances of the service, right? And so is that sort of how you think about it as well?
0: Yeah, so so some of the things that you'd want an operator to take care of in a Cassandra world are, you know, I want to add capacity. I want to add, you know, another n- node to my cluster, or I want to upgrade my cluster to a new version, but I want to do that intelligently where first I upgrade one node and when that's done, I upgrade another. So there's this kind of rolling upgrade rather than a big bang where we shut it down and restart it. So uh, basically the idea is that you you do automate and build in like error handling what happens if i tr- start adding a node to my cluster but then like the network connection dies what do i do at that point you know, build those things into the operator uh, instead of hoping that everyone does it correctly in kind of an ad hoc on their own fashion
1: yeah and so and you're actually using that same operator that i think did you open source the operator
0: it's not open source no
1: Okay, but it's so it's you. You have this operator. You you do offer it as part of Stacks Enterprise, then. Yes. Okay, so you offer it as part of Stacks Enterprise, and you're also using it as a foundational piece of operating the Apollo um, service. That's right. Great, and so you know one thing. Like, I'm, I'm always curious, and this is this is maybe going to get really nerdy and technical for for the Kubernetes uh, world here, but. You know, when I think about the opportunity for operators, um, and you described some of the sort of common tasks that it might perform, one thing that you didn't mention was around sort of performance, right? So is this an area that you think that operators can start to, to have a hand in where maybe they're integrated with Prometheus or something else, and you're getting some amount of feedback from how the system is performing, and then you're making... Automated tweaks based on that, or is that just too far out?
0: I think we're really close to, to that world. Uh, the research group at CMU under Andy Pavlo has built a you know, machine learning based database tuning and optimization service. And uh, it's called OtterTune, so like the animal uh, OtterTune. And what it does is, you know, it, it says, hey, there's you know, 125 configuration knobs for Cassandra and there's, you know, over 500 for MySQL, that's more than, you know, even the best human can reasonably deal with. So as a human, I come in and I say, I'm going to make this Cassandra workload perform better. I'm going to go to like the half a dozen most important tunables. And that's probably where I stop because there just isn't time to deal with more. But you know, when you have an automated system, it's got all the time in the world and it can start going down that long tail of you know maybe this setting that's a little more obscure is actually going to move the needle for you. So I think we get to a point where it's not just saving humans time, but it's doing better than uh, humans can actually do. And where Kubernetes comes in is, I think that the way it makes the most sense is for the optimization service to run above Kubernetes and to push out its recommendations through the Kubernetes operator rather than building it into the operator itself. But that's kind of a, a level of detail that, again, there's there's more than one right answer. But I think we're really close to, to where that becomes not just uh, a research project, but ubiquitous in the industry.
1: I love that. I, I'm I've actually been following OtterTune for a while as well, and uh, and I agree it's it's super fascinating. I think some of the talks Andy gives, he talks, like he kind of compares the idea of like who can configure a Postgres database the best, right? OtterTune RDS or like the best Facebook DBA, yes. And you know, it was like basically. Otter tune is better than RDS but like the, the Facebook DBA you know made some tweak that was a, a business level decision about a, a knob that you would tweak that only if you knew the system that was happening would you would you get that advantage mm-hmm. but generally the idea is that you can you know because there are so many knobs and so much so many things that this system can sort of intelligently test them out until it's 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 created the most performant uh, solution yes. I'm actually like, this is such a nerdy thrill, but like, I haven't talked to many people about Outer Tune, and and they did another project before that Peloton, uh, not to be confused with the bikes. But this is a really interesting and emerging area of technology where I think if we can get to true, true self healing and self optimizing services, it creates this sort of really amazing future for how we can run and operate services at scale without, you know, needing. So much hand holding in, in observation. So, I'm really excited about that future.
0: Yeah. So, you know, occasionally I have people ask me, so, you know, isn't database a commodity now? Like, does it even matter if you're running Cassandra or MongoDB or MySQL versus PostgreSQL? And I think when you look at, you know, things like this, like there's a lot of scope for improvement still. And that's going to be really material to people. So, yeah, I don't I don't think we've tapped out the innovation in the database space or uh, the more broad infrastructure space at all.
1: Oh yeah, I mean there's there's so much opportunity. I believe that we have made leaps and bounds in terms of, you know, what we've been able to do with creating these patterns and primitives for distributed systems in the last 15, you know, 10, 5 years, but the opportunity to continue to to make bigger and bigger improvements I I think is is still directly in front of us. Exactly. It's interesting, you know. You mentioned uh, Mesos and sort of this idea that, like, hey, you know, obviously Kubernetes is one, and I guess like Mesos, you know, being part of the Apache Foundation, like you probably had a deeper integration with it first. I think Mesos is also sort of like generally like thought of as having a better like integration with stateful services. You know, five years ago, rather than the last two years, you mentioned Kubernetes, mm-hmm. and so is that a, is that an, an ecosystem that you were fairly invested in at some point at DataStax as well?
0: Uh, now that you mention it, yeah, we were uh, pretty early partners with Mesosphere, and like you said, they they dealt with you know databases and stateful services at a time when Kubernetes didn't. So yeah, I mean, it's an interesting alternate reality to uh, to picture where Mesos won, but uh, but here we are.
1: Do, do you have any? I mean, you don't. I don't put you on the spot. But do you have any any thoughts around like why you think that Kubernetes actually ended up winning?
0: I think it's a couple things. Uh, one is, you know, it did come out with the weight of Google behind it. I think at a technical level, it's that you know Kubernetes was really built for the container world, whereas Mesos started in, I'm thinking, in terms of VMs, and so there was some baggage that they had that Kubernetes didn't. But I, I don't think either of those are necessarily things that couldn't have been overcome. Again, in some kind of alternate reality.
1: The community nature of Kubernetes, I think, has been pretty impactful, right? You saw Red Hat and Google and Microsoft all get on and get on pretty early. I think that just and then it just was more open, maybe. It just felt like there wasn't a single leader because Google they, they were been involved, but they weren't dominating the commercial offering space. So could be. Cool. And then, you know, another topic, you know, I, I sort of I look over at, at data stacks and sort of particularly the leadership team. That you've managed to pull together and and recruit over the last few years, and you know there's this guy I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before that, that I just joined as your chief product officer at Enough, who I have a ton of respect for as an incredible product leader. Um, but I also know you you recruited over Sam Ramji, who was at Cloud Foundry and Google for a while, and, and and Chet is your CEO. So you know when you think about scaling an organization and bringing on these sort of executive hires who have done all of this before you know you mentioned like it's hard to get those when you're when you're smaller but once you start to scale like how do you think about finding recruiting and engaging you know such great executive talent like that in the way that you've done in the last few few years
0: yeah, I, I think this is a hard problem that I'm not very good at. And <laughs> it's it's primarily the job of the CEO, right? Like, it's the job of the CEO to hire the executive team. And, you know, I'm involved in the process. But, you know, when I'm looking at hiring engineers, you know, I can do a technical interview and, you know, we can go into what effective technical interviewing means. But uh, I can say with nearly 100% certainty, like this engineer Uh, can do the job. And then like, you know, you still have some false positives where like Jonathan can do the job, but he's actually really bad at dealing, you know, having that maturity to work in a distributed environment. And so there's still, you know, some hires that aren't going to work out, but in terms of can he do the job, I have a very clear signal on that. And when it comes to hiring a VP of product or a chief marketing officer like it's way more difficult. And part of it's just that at that level, everyone's good at selling themselves. And partly it's it's that you can't give someone a take-home test and come back and say, oh yeah, you know exactly how to run marketing for data stacks. So I'm really impressed with the job Chet's done uh, recruiting quality talent. And you know I think if, if he has a secret weapon, I think what it is is that Chet is not selling something right in the sense that when Chet recruits uh, an executive, he says, here's why I think Datasta is going to change the world and he's completely honest about that and you can tell I think when when someone is trying to sell you versus you know telling you how they really feel. So I think that his his sense of mission and his excitement is contagious.
1: That's interesting, okay. But I mean, you you kind of helped bring Chet on board in some way, right? It's like, even just getting him to be engaged, he's he's been quite successful throughout his career. having He built and sold Apogee to Google. So did you have to do the same thing, where you kind of just shared your vision for why data stacks was so important in order to kind of get him engaged?
0: Yeah, and I wouldn't have articulated it that way, but now that you say that, I think that's exactly what happened. Part of being successful as a startup is hard work right but that's not what makes or breaks you because all of your peers are working just as hard so sometimes you just have to roll the dice and hope that it lands on you know sixes and with our ceo hires uh first with billy bosworth and then with chet you know, I think I think that's the kind of success that you can't really plan for, and you can't get just by working hard. Like the stars have to align, and you have to get a bit lucky. And I think uh, that's what happened.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, it takes building something interesting in a compelling space, and you know, and then also, you know, have a team that uh, they're excited to work with. And mm-hmm. it's it's one of these things that I'm thinking about more and more. Is I want to build out an exec team, and you know, I'm trying to figure out. Like, how do I one find the folks that that really kind of already believe some of the core things that that we believe, and then two, like, are are willing to take a risk, you know, on on an earlier stage company because they see the opportunity to to really scale. So it's just one of these interesting challenges. I think you have to do you know as you build a, you know a, a big company, but. Something that most of us don't have much experience with, right? Like yeah. I'm sure you had never recruited many, you know, senior executives to teams that you were at before. So
0: yeah, hopefully, and and this is where uh, investors are are actually really useful. So when I was starting DataStacks, uh, you know, all the investors were like. Oh, we will be your partner and not just write you a check. And I'm like rolling my eyes and thinking, yeah, yeah, that's great. But what I really want is is the check. <laughs> um, but it's actually it's actually true that the non-financial contributions can actually be really meaningful. And one of the things that you know I've really enjoyed about working with John Vriannis is how. He has been so involved at every stage of data stacks. and I don't want to, you know, spend too much time praising my investors. But you know, stereotypically, you've kind of got early stage and late stage investors, and maybe somewhere in there you've got mid stage uh, specialists. But uh, John's been able to uh, scale with us from that early stage to where we are today, and uh, and be meaningfully involved all along the way. So. Uh, hopefully, uh, your your investors will be able to make introductions to the kinds of executives that you're looking to recruit.
1: And and he's been on the board since uh, since that first two and a half million dollar round. Yes. Wow. How, and how big is the board right now? Like how many folks are have have like not, not just observer but true board seats?
0: I want to say seven. I'd have to go through the names in my head, but I, I think
1: it's seven. Sure. And you're you're one of those, I assume. I am. Yes. Yeah. Boards are are interesting as companies get larger and larger. That's right. Cool. And then one thing you said which I'm actually I would love to, to just get your perspective on is you said, you know, something about technical hiring and in and sort of that interview process and it sounds like you have a bit of a framework that you use. I'd love to hear that because I think that's often a challenge, mm-hmm. you know, early on is is having a really clear idea of what you know a, a developer can come in and accomplish and fit well with your culture. I'd love how you think about that.
0: Yeah, so there's there's a dial you can adjust in terms of you know how many false positives do i get versus how many false negatives in the sense that you know if my hiring process is super rigorous then i'll be very confident that i'm not hiring someone incompetent on the other hand a lot of you know senior talent will look at that and say man i'm not spending you know 4 hours on a technical interview when i can go get a job you know with a conversation at other places, so there's a bit of a dial there. And uh, when I was running our Cassandra team, so up until fall of 2015, I had the dial pegged really hard towards I will not have any false positives. And one of the tools that I used for that was actually taking advantage of you know the open source nature of Cassandra to actually give people here is here's a ticket that someone has filed against Cassandra that represents either a legitimate bug or a legitimate feature we want to add. And the tricky part is, you know, finding something that's meaningful enough that you know, people can sink their teeth into a little bit, but not so meaningful that it's critical that you know, we solve this for customers right away. But uh, we did a reasonable job of, of threading that needle. And so, like, the you know state-of-the-art of technical interviewing is you want to give the interview as much connection as possible to what someone will actually be doing on the job. So like at the far end of completely useless is asking someone to write Quicksort on a whiteboard. Like nobody writes code on whiteboards. They have Google, they have Stack Overflow, they have IntelliJ to do code completion. Like you want it to be as real as possible. And then if you say, here's an actual ticket from the open source project, that's not going to just require you to write code, but also to understand existing code, which I think is actually harder uh, when you have a, a meaningful existing code base, then you know, that's as realistic as you can get.
1: Yeah, that's great. We've been doing similar things. I think being open source is really helpful there because you know, the sort of the the ask of, hey, contribute to this open source project um, is much different than like, hey, like, you know, write this. Like, we're gonna give you access to some repo, or we've created some. Fake example. Spend you know eight hours doing this project. You know, committing to open source is something that folks are interested in. And and then one thing that we do that I think is partially just because like the industry seems to be there's some a little bit of blowback around asking folks to do too much uh, during an interview process mm-hmm. is, is we, we like to just give you know some amount of uh, recognition for that contribution. So it could be like a two hundred fifty dollar Amazon gift card or something.
0: Yeah, we we ran into that a little bit where people are like, "Oh, you're trying to get me to provide free labor during the interview process," and you know that wasn't the idea. You know, we'd have we'd have like a dozen candidates uh, working on the same ticket. Basically, we'd we'd use the same ticket until somebody from the community went and fixed our ticket and committed it, and then we couldn't use it anymore.
1: I love I love that idea around it, and I think it's it's good. It's right. It's like I mean, I actually my, my thought is like better to actually not get free work but not have people do work that doesn't matter and so there's this interesting mix it's like mm-hmm. and that's why we sort of say like hey we're going to recognize your contribution with a gift card mm-hmm. because you know I don't want to like spend the time to pay people and put them on some type of contractor thing but if we can say hey here's a here's a gift card for this effort you know we won't, we don't want to we don't expect free labor so Right it is. It's an interesting debate within the ecosystem. We like our little solution, but it, the, the main challenge, to your point, is like it's actually quite hard to find like the right level of issue or you know to to give to someone to do. You're like, oh, is that one too complicated? Is that too easy? So you know, you you, you kind of would want to reuse the same thing over and over. But mm-hmm. uh, one other thing you said that I you know I'm interested to see how do you think about it? Like you said, Chet and, and sort of and you would have to do it at the same time when you were recruiting executives particularly, but explain why it's gonna have such an impact on the world. When well, you know when you think about data stacks, I'd love to just like hear you kind of talk for a bit about why this is such an important company and technology and you know how do you sort of sell that like that larger vision? Like what, what is that for data stacks?
0: Yeah, you know so when we were uh, initially raising money, you know the reaction we got from a shocking number of investors was, you know this is cool technology, but there's a market for like five companies in the world that need a, a scalable database like more than they can get from Oracle. And I think in the in the you know 10 years since then, we've been thoroughly vindicated by the market that like this actually is something that you know virtually all, modern applications need to think about, like, if I'm successful, I'm not going to fit on my, you know, my SQL box or my RDS, you know, VM. And so the way to think about it is not like, oh, how much of the existing market can you capture, but how big is the next market that, you know, the relational databases can't even address? How big is that market going to be? And uh, I think it's probably going to be at least twice the size of the relational market. So you know right now, uh, Gartner's estimate is a five billion dollar uh, NoSQL market, but that's going to be you know fifteen in five years.
1: And so it's really just about painting the picture for why this becomes such an important part of the industry over time.
0: Yeah, I, I I think it really comes back to like the challenges I encountered as an engineer, and I know firsthand like this this is something that we need to build effective applications, and it's just going to be part of the landscape the way new relational databases are part of the landscape.
1: Yeah, I like that. What one other thing that I've been I think about with uh you know just generally in terms of a bit more broader mission oriented, which I think applies to basically every like infrastructure software company. And it's it's actually based on like this. So Zuck was did some interview series, and and he was talking about how healthcare didn't really have much tool building, and so you know it just it it didn't have some of the efficiency that you get from engineering, where we we just like focus so much on tool building. Hmm. And the idea was that like tool building just gives you like this huge amount of leverage, right? So when you contribute to you know a company like datastax or any developer tool company who's enabling the like a downstream developer to do something else you're basically freeing up like you know hundreds or millions of hours of effort that like the community at large was all going to solve you know each sort of independently and by you doing it upstream and then sort of delivering it to those folks they get to go do different things mm-hmm. and so there's this huge amount of leverage that you get by building a tool company that's going to provide you know that level of of sort of effective and efficiency to all these different projects and i know and, and, and to me that's like this really sort of gets me excited about the future of what we're able to do and the velocity at which we're able to keep moving and i think it provides me with some really crystal clear value for what we're doing day in day out
0: no, that's a good point. Like if you look at like uh, you know two thousand one up through roughly you know two thousand nine or so, the industry state of the art for solving the scale out data problem was to shard a relational database, and you know this was an ad hoc solution that different companies approached differently, and it tended to not be very reusable. From one project to another, even within a company. Right. So having a, a general purpose solution that just makes that something you don't have to think about very hard, uh, I think that is super valuable. And and then the question is, so like if I'm going to apply this to starting a company more generally, like how big is the problem that I'm solving for people?
1: Yeah, and I mean, and it doesn't seem like we have any lack of data and and uh, and systems problems. Like there's there's a lot here, so I'm enthusiastic about the future of what you're building. and Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate all the insights uh, into building such a such an interesting infrastructure company. So, Thank you again.
0: Thanks a lot, Grant. I appreciate it.
1: That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at Replicated.com.